I'm Trana Winter, a writer, comedian, singer, basically Barbara Streisand minus the money and some of the talent. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc, a gay Quebecois host and producer who's really, really, really into Celine Dion. We're the hosts of Chosen Family, a CBC podcast where we speak to our heroes about what it means to find community in the creative process. Chosen Family is available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. People are curious, and that's great. But there are some questions you just shouldn't ask. Or at least, not like that. I'm Harvinder Vadva. I'm Elena Hudgens-Lyle. And this is Inappropriate Questions. Let's get inappropriate. So, Elena, when I see the question, how can I do better? Mm-hmm. I need a little more context here. Yeah. As we're recording this, it's been just over a year since the murder of George Floyd and the start of last year's protests against racist police violence and the rising conversations about anti-Black racism that came out of that. I remember at that time seeing so many resources online about how to be anti-racist, how to have hard conversations about anti-Blackness with your loved ones. And there was a lot of advice about what actions to take. One piece of advice in particular that stuck with me was seeing folks say, Don't ask the black people in your life, how can I do better? Mm. Alena, I am unclear as to why this question is inappropriate. Hmm. If someone is trying to be less racist or anti-racist or whatever the case may be, Mm -hmm. that should be encouraged. My, My situation is different. I'm not a black person. But if someone asks how they could be less racist towards me, I would welcome it. And see this as a sign of things changing. Mm. So I am not understanding how this question can be harmful. Yeah, I get where you're coming from with this question. And I think a lot of people would have the same thoughts, which is what made me interested in breaking this down on the show in the first place. Hopefully this voice note from Amari can help contextualize it a little bit. Take a listen. Hi, my name's Amari, and I'm currently living in New York. Throwback to my first year at Columbia, I already knew that I was going to encounter challenges, especially going into a predominantly white institution. I knew that my Blackness would be something that is going to define my experience at this university. And whether in the classroom or whether with people I was potentially trying to make friends with or even were friends with in my first year, I kept encountering conversations or just like, points that were being brought up in those settings that were just absolutely wrong and um, invalidating to literally just my existence. For example, in the classroom, um, one of the courses we're required to take as like a Columbia University, specifically Columbia College student, um, is called Contemporary Civilizations. And in that class, we read a lot of old texts that are like the key quote unquote names Um, such as like Plato and Aristotle, you know, like the names that get thrown around a lot like that. Um, And in a lot of those texts, for example, they justify slavery. So I remember like being in the classroom and trying to articulate that. It felt like a constant battle that ultimately like the world kind of decided for me how I would have to address these things because I don't want to be complicit in oppression. I don't want to 
you know, and on the, for the sake of my community. It's like, I felt like, or I was positioned in such a way where I felt like I had to be a teaching tool. I had to do that emotional labor. And in trying to explain why those things were harmful, I was so upset and just angry. And I, again, just kind of got to a point where I was just like, I cannot do this. I can't handle this. And I felt kind of alone in it. We already face, as Black people, we already face so much marginalization and varying degrees of that, depending on things such as your socioeconomic status and your skin color and skin tone more specifically. And so on top of that, being expected to teach those people who are benefiting from the systems that are oppressing us is honestly quite insulting. Because ultimately, while I probably, because of who I am and like the spaces I occupy as someone who enjoys education and facilitation, like I will probably steer you in a direction towards certain tools. That's just me. (laughs) In general, like Black people do not owe you as in a general person of privilege and power, anything, honestly. Whoever you're asking that question to, you're assuming that they are your teacher, that you are entitled to their answer and their work. Because asking a person, how can I do better? Like, that's something people unpack in therapy for years. So let's be real. Like, I don't know why you're assuming that this Black person that you're asking is your therapist or your teacher. I think how can I do better is a great question, but I think it's a great question to ask yourself. And in that case, it's essential to continuously ask yourself, how can I be better and how can I do better? Okay, Helena, again, I changed my mind. (laughs) Uh, Prior to this, I did not think how this question could be inappropriate. Mm. But after listening to Mari, I can very much see why this question can be troublesome. Mm. But I'd like to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, well, perfect, because we're about to be speaking to someone who has written a whole book about this. Frederick Joseph is a writer, activist, and marketing professional in New York City. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Black Friend, on being a better white person. Thanks so much for joining us, Frederick. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So, how can I do better? Why is that problematic? Yeah, so I think that at this point, right, it, it, it's akin to a person punching another person in the arm every single day for an entire school year. (laughs) And every time, and every time they punch that person in the arm, you know, the person tells them, Hey, I would prefer you not punch me in the arm. Mm. And then, you know, every single day, so I punch you in the arm. You tell me you prefer me not to punch you in your arm. And then the very last day of school, when I go next to you, Mm -hmm. I say, Hey, what would you like me to do? Right. When meanwhile, the other, every other single day of the year, I've told you exactly what not to do. And better yet, every other student in class has also said, hey, you shouldn't punch him in the arm. This is what you can do. Right. right? So there's so much context and literal content out that at this point, if you're still asking that question, I mean, I've seen anti-racism on Sesame Street, right? right. Like if, you're st- <laughs> if, you're, if you're still asking the question of what can I do, then that means that you've just been completely you know, it's just because you haven't you haven't cared, frankly. Uh, <laughs> right. I wrote an 
entire book on racism and we have an anti-racist movement, what left does there need to be? Right. So, mm. so that, that would be the response. It's like before, before there was a, an Ibram X. Kendi or Frederick Joseph or, mm. um, or any of these current kind of um, voices in this space, there was already an Angela Davis, a James Baldwin. There was already a Malcolm right. X. There was a Martin Luther King Jr. Right. Mm. So I'm not necessarily saying, Oh, the work doesn't need to be done. What I'm saying is the work has been done. Right. So people will be like, if I'm like, Hey, you know, there's plenty of content and context out where you can go um, to understand better without having to, uh, pour from the cups of people um, constantly, right? There's enough already done. Right. And if you keep on trying to draw from the same well mm -hmm. in which you've already drank the water, you must, it's not a matter of you not quenching your thirst. You just are being gluttonous at that point. Mm. When you said pour from the cup, I'm getting a very, excuse me, I'm gay, I'm getting a very tarot card imagery. <laughs> uh, like in, in tarot, cups mean emotions. Mm -hmm. So what does, what do you mean when folks are pouring from their cups to answer this question? So inherently, you have to take something from yourself in order to give something to another person, whether that's explaining something, whether it's whether it's love, whether it's hatred, whatever <laughs> it may be, you have to you have to pull from yourself in order to give it to someone else. Mm -hmm. And when you pull from yourself, unless you or someone else is putting something back into you, you have less than what you started with, right? Right. But in yeah. using the example of like my book. I said to someone recently, I'm like, hey, this is actually my first and last book on race specifically. I never wanted to write about race. I never I never had an interest in writing about race whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I saw that there was something missing that I felt like I could add. And so I did it. And now I'm done. And people are like, oh, my God, what do you mean? We need more. This and that there, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yes, but it's deeply traumatic to have to go to those places and try to pull from that place in order to teach you. Right. So I would much rather have given you what I gave you. I'm moving on and I'm going to write things now that help pour into me that I find cathartic and healing. Mm. I want to share a small experience I had. Yeah. Uh, when I came to Canada, when I used to travel via bus, mm -hmm. the seat next to me would be empty until the whole bus would be filled. Oh, by, by the way, just to clarify, I wear a turban. Right. Uh, and I'm ta now talking about 98. So, yeah, initially it felt very bad. But uh, then eventually I realized, you know what, I get uh, two seats. So I, I looked at it that way. <laughs> but if anybody had asked me when I was... Uh, nobody would sit next to me. How could that person do better? I would have welcomed that uh, mm. any day than uh, just being avoided. Right. I chose to come to this country and I am not expecting people to know a whole lot about me. Mm. So I am willing to put that extra effort. Yes, it would drain me a little bit, but that would eventually make life, my life and life of pe people around me and people who will be coming after me. Yeah. There would be a little bit more sensitivity towards my culture. Yeah. I think that, you know, Black Americans and, and Native Americans, um, both indigenous to um, the United States and to Canada, are very specific in in experience because mm. let's use let's use yourself as an example, Harv. You you decided to come from whatever country you came from, and, yeah. and so when you made that decision, you said, "I'm going to go to a place." where I am going to be an outlier or I'm going to be the exception as opposed to the rule mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. let's say a, a black American 
not only is our culture and our existence interwoven into every facet of this country, but we also technically built the country, like literally built the country, blood, sweat, and tears, right? Mm. I'm not an immigrant to this country. I actually have been here as long as white people. So what what a lot of us are saying is we've been fighting the same fight and it's not necessarily about we don't want people to understand us. It's like, well, after 400 years, why don't you understand us, right? Like how mm-hmm. much, again, like I mentioned, um, Native Americans here in the United States, that frustration, I think, will ultimately be a little bit different generationally yep. because it's not a matter of like, hey, I want you to know me better. I'm new here. It's, hey, why don't you know who I am? You're sitting on my front porch. Yeah. Mm. When you were talking about doing the work and to your point earlier about if folks are looking for to learn you know before the Ibram X Kendi's and the U's there were Angela Davis's and stuff yeah uh what's your point to someone who maybe finds themselves being someone who keeps asking this question is the next step just on ourselves to I don't know google uh go to the library is that where you think the work should start Yeah, I mean, all the tools and the resources that could ever be needed to be anti anything oppressive, right? Like if I'm saying like, hey, how can I be better about black trans women in New York City? I can literally type that into Google right now and probably get like five think pieces and next steps on how to do just that, right? And that's, I think, the, the beauty of the, not just the moment we're in, but the beauty of access to information. It's, it's, it's greater than we've ever seen before. If we were having conversations about what to do next, how it can be better, what I can learn back in 1995 or 1972 or 1961, then it would make sense to me. But from my cell phone, all the information is there. It has always been there. And now it is be, it has been curated, especially since um, George Floyd's murder, it's been curated so thoughtfully by so many that there kind of just isn't an excuse anymore for anybody. Mm. So, uh, Frederick, I want to give you a pathetic example. And I'm <laughs> deliberately giving that pathetic example. <laughs> okay. I know I should be flossing every day. Okay. And I don't. This is relatable. <laughs> and the point I am trying to make here is that we know a lot of things we should be doing, but we don't. And again, another example. I go to my work. I meet people who are around me, whoever they may be. It doesn't matter what what culture they are, where, where, which country they come from. Okay. We sometimes go out and have a dinner or drinks or whatever the case is. We come home. Outside that, I have never felt the need to Google and learn more about the cultures of the people I have met. Right. Yes, maybe I'm just a bad person, <laughs> but I can tell you a majority of the people would not do that. So the point I'm trying to make is, are we discouraging conversation that would eventually make society better? Well, with that being said, let's let's use your your flossing example, right? Let's let's say that somebody curated a bunch of books and films and television shows and online essays and podcasts and things like that about flossing. And let's say you still decided that you're not going to floss. Like somebody put in your face every day the pictures of people's teeth and things like that, what it looks like if you don't uh, sure. <laughs> if you don't floss. And, and then let's say there was a, a movement that said like flossing matters and you still decided 
I'm not going to floss, <laughs> right? And you just did all these things. And then at some point, I think that it would be kind of like sensible for somebody to say, that person just really doesn't care about flossing, right? <laughs> like, so, so I, I totally, I totally hear you 100%. And I think that the conversation is never really about, oh, we don't want you to be better or we this and that third. I, I, to be quite frank, I need people to be better about racism and anti-blackness because I intend on having children mm. and I don't want my children to deal with the things that I, I've dealt with because it, it's not that it's not important for other people to learn. It's that the learning is so easily accessible. It, it's like, it's, it's deep entitlement. Um, like mm -hmm. the, the, the example, even of you flossing, one thing that's different there is that you are paying your dentist, your dentist, your dentist wants you to come back, right? Because mm -hmm. your dentist is getting, your dentist is actively um, being paid for it, right? It's, it's, so mm -hmm. there's so many ways in which the only person who has anything to gain potentially would be the person making the mistakes and their entitlement mm -hmm. and, and their complete, like utter lack of care is essentially why they keep on doing the same thing. They think they can keep on coming back and drawing from that well. Right. What questions, if any, uh, do you wish non-black folks would ask you? Uh, how I'm how I'm doing? Um, <laughs> that's that'd be a good question, right? I know. I, I think yeah. people learning more about black experiences for the intention not to commodify and capitalize on them. Like as an example. Okay, so Black Lives Matter. And next thing you get like a McDonald's commercial that's like, come to McDonald's to get a black burger, right? Like, <laughs> there's not a, there's a, not literally, but figuratively, right? Like, <laughs> I was like, wait, what was that? <laughs> no, 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 not, not literally. But, <laughs> but what I do literally have is like a bunch of emails from people saying, Black Lives Matter, um, watch this on Hulu or Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. you know, buy some, buy some food from um, Uber Eats and things like that. Yeah. I would love a moment. I would love questions that are just rooted in, hey, like, how are you? What are you doing? What's up? What do you enjoy? Yeah. Right. Like as an example, it's not we're not just in a moment of of stop racism against black people and things of that nature. We're in like a moment of like stop oppression against everybody like this. The same reckoning that we're going through is the same reckoning that the Asian community is going through right now. It's a reckoning that the, the transgender community is going through and so on and so forth. Hmm. And we check on each other. Right. Like I have Asian friends who before some of the things of this year were happening. Right. When, yeah. when Michael Brown was murdered, when Trayvon Martin was murdered, so on and so forth, they're just like, hey, are you okay? Right? And that's pouring into my well. They're like, hey, I, I learned a lot from this guy. He's also a friend. Are you okay? Do you do you need anything? Like, right. like where where is your head at? Hey, I just saw this show. You might want to watch. Get your mind off of things a little bit, right? And in return, I'm doing mm. the same thing. So it's not always necessarily about monetary gain. That's just one example of how the dentist is being paid um, in, in that example that Harv gave. Unless Harv is paying, <laughs> Harv might be paying in affirmations, like just going to the dentist every day and say, like, I, you're great. You're, you're wonderful. I appreciate <laughs> You. You're I the best really, dentist. Yeah, yeah. you're the best oh dentist. God. There's not another I, dentist in the world. So <laughs> I love this this analogy. It is transcending. It is continuing. So how can I do better? Is that an inappropriate question? No, I, <laughs> so again, I don't, I don't think that wanting to know how you could do better is, is an inappropriate question inherently. I think that, right. that you're a good person for wanting to do good things. I think that people just have to um, be made aware that, you know, there's, there's finite resources in emotions, 
uh, and and just so the soul, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. so I, you know, even like something as simple as if I have this conversation, the second I get off of here, I'm going to go eat something, and I have to have a conversation with HBO tonight about um, slave revolts, right? Oh damn, right? No, I mean they're they're good conversations and they're needed conversations, and I I enjoy the 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 meeting of minds, um, but also by the end by the end of the day, I'm exhausted. I just might want to watch um, you know some anime, right? Just to get my yeah. mind off of these things. Yeah. So. So at that point, if somebody's like, hey, why can't you jump on this conversation to talk about lynchings? Mm. I'm like, I don't have it. Yeah. You know? So <laughs> there are more tentacles of oppression mm-hmm. for a black American mm. experience. Right. So like Absolutely. there's a lot more things. And I think that's why a lot of black people have said, hey, we are tired. Like the second if I'm not talking about mm-hmm. black women's hair and microaggressions, I'm going to have to talk about the George Floyd trial, which inherently means I have to talk about the judicial system, which inherently means I have to talk about the wealth gap. Right. So it's so it's all these different mm. things at the same time. Fair. Fair. Tentacles of oppression. Fair. That's that's very evocative. I've got like, you know, the dentist's office on one side of my brain and then like an octopus on the other <laughs> side and like all sorts of stuff going on. So it's like it's like uh, it's like Harv, Harv's in the dentist chair. I'm riding an octopus. We're just doing a lot, you know. It's just... <laughs> I really love talking to Frederick. It definitely a surprising takeaway for me <laughs> was that I am badly overdue at the dentist. So <laughs> you are not anti-dentai, right? <laughs> anti-dentai. <laughs> it's a Seinfeld reference. <laughs> okay, yeah, classic dad stuff over yeah. here. Dentistry aside and Seinfeld aside, is there anything that Frederick said that surprised you or made you think about this differently? Definitely, definitely, Elena. I have said that before I always have welcomed that question not that anybody has asked me that question but I would welcome it (laughs) but uh, now looking at Frederick's uh, response and uh, the concept of overflowing cup Mm -hmm. I can definitely see the other side as well yeah, I think in, in different ways, like it's it's a very understandable concept that you really can't give of yourself when you're not being filled. Mm-hmm. It could mm-hmm. definitely be really draining and that expectation that you be available to educate these people on Absolutely. a moment's notice is, is quite a lot. So, yes, as you're speaking, Elena, the image of uh, me filling the cup uh, for uh, rinsing my mouth at the dentist comes to mind. Like if I press it too hard, it overflows. Oh so, yeah, of course. So you need the right amount of water there. All metaphors are rooted in the dentist now. This is going to be our new thing. I love it. This podcast is sponsored by my dentist. <laughs> in 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Even with good intent behind it, there are dynamics going on behind this question that make the idea of, quote-unquote, doing better more complicated. 
I'm speaking to a professor who has some thoughts on anti-blackness in Canada, why things like anti-racism training might not be the solution, and how accountability can start in small ways. I am Andrea Davis. I am an associate professor in the Department of Humanities at York University, where I'm also the special advisor on the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Professional Studies Anti-Black Racism Strategy. I think that if someone says to me, how can I do better? It suggests a disconnect, right? Hmm. That they already know that they're not doing well enough. Hmm. I think that a, a better response would be to be thoughtful and self-reflective about what you see in the world around you, how you move and have moved through that world, where you think you aren't doing enough and what you can do better. I think it has to begin from that place rather than asking me to identify in you Mm. because I can only guess at those things, right? right? I, I can only offer some ideas, but the person who is asking that question also has a responsibility to think about how have I fallen short? Mm. We both live in the same world. I don't have magical answers that you don't have. (laughs) Right. I feel like I've often felt that I might lack some of the context or information about racism because I don't have that personal experience. Could people be asking this question to Black folks because they aren't really sure how to self-assess? I think there's a little bit of of laziness there. Mm. All of us, we have a responsibility to seek to know. So as as a post-1960s immigrant from Jamaica... I encountered and met Indigenous peoples that I didn't know before. Mm. Now, it's my responsibility if I live in this country, if I walk on this land and participate in this so-called democracy, to get to know the history of that place, to know who the people were who were here before me, what their concerns are. And I may not understand everything, but I have to begin from that place of seeking to know. And it can't just be going to an Indigenous friend and saying, well, what should I know? Like, give me a one-hour base, Indigenous Studies 101. It doesn't happen like that, right? It takes time and thinking and thoughtfulness. And when I do that work for myself, there's a way in which it sits with me or I have to sit with it and think about it and process it that is different from just having someone tell me this is how you should think this is how you should feel and this is how you should act Mm. and then if I have precise questions I might go to someone and say I don't understand this specific thing but just saying how can I do better is is not fair to the person who is being asked as well and so all of us have to be prepared to be continually doing that work mm. so on learning the things that i now know are not valuable and learning and relearning the things that i need to know 
Right. And you mentioned also how this question puts a responsibility on you. I've often heard emotional labor discussed when it comes to this question. Um, what is emotional labor and how does that relate to this question? Well, emotional labor is, is a kind of labor that racialized and, you know, marginalized people, people who are not considered at part of the, you know, the cultural norm yeah. feel in a room when they are called upon to teach the dominant culture about themselves. So to become the reference, to stand in for the whole. Right. So you're in a classroom and you're the only Black student and it's Black History Month and somehow you're expected to teach the whole class, you know, but you're mm. just 10. <laughs> right. So it's that weight, that pressure. And sometimes we do, right? We step into that moment and we make those interventions because we, we must because we don't want that slippage to last, but it's having to do it over and over and over again that becomes laborious. Mm -hmm. As a professor, do you encounter this, this weight of, even though teaching is your job, do you encounter this kind of weight of having to teach the dominant culture a lot in your work? Yes and no. I mean, I'm, hmm. I, I don't think of myself as teaching to the dominant culture. Hmm, I think okay. of myself as using Black thought, Black ideas, Black cultures, and exposing them, exposing that thought so that that thought, those ideas, those cultures become centered in the room. Mm, right. I don't do, what I'm saying is I don't do anti-Black racism. I, I don't set out to do that consciously. I'm not interested in that because that is really a, a, a project for white people, right? Precisely this project of how can I do better? Right. So I think of myself as centering Blackness as part of the human. And it, I think it's in those moments where we're not actually consciously saying, how can I do better? That the aha moment, you know, often happens. Interesting. You're actually making me think when you mentioned kind of your approach versus this question's approach. Like I always hear people talking about how, you know, black trauma is centered over black joy or black experience in general. Yes. Yes. If we're only centering black trauma, how do we expect them to live with that? Then we're asking them to bear that every single day. And blackness remains forever at a deficit. So again, when you say, when someone says, how should I do better? They're posing that question from a place of privilege hmm. that says, I am the privileged one and you have no privilege. But I, you know, in my largesse, in my kindness and generosity, I want to do better. But what if you met together and you put both of your thoughts and ideas on the same plane, you know, and just thought hmm. if two equal people were in a room, we wouldn't say, how can I do better? We would just get to know each other and develop and build a relationship. Right. So always when you ask that question, you're asking it from a place of power. Hmm. In Canada, I think we're often guilty of thinking way more about the U.S. context instead of our own. Is anti-Blackness very different here or would you say somewhat similar? I don't really think it's different. Hmm. Um, I think Canadians like to think so. I think that if the effects are the same. Hmm. And in some ways, I would say the difference is that it's harder to talk 
about about race and about anti-blackness here because people just don't think it's a problem. Mm. If people don't see excruciating black pain, if they don't witness black death, if don't if they don't hear someone one saying that the N word over and over again, then they don't recognize racism. Mm. So they don't see the way it manifests in microaggressions, in their own microaggressions in the workplace, right? In in little slight comments about a black woman's hair or body. Mm. So they don't understand that as racism, but black people do. And, And they experience that unrelentingly every single day. Mm. So that's part of the problem, that the expectation is it's about violence, it's about death, and that is the only thing that will evoke my sympathy, my empathy, and my care. There's something profoundly wrong with that. Hmm. I've heard a lot, especially in the last year, about how you know a lot of people's statements and attempts at allyship and stuff can be performative Mm -hmm. and not actually helpful. What does that mean to be performative? Well, it it means that you you behave at least publicly in ways that will mark your character, right? Mark you as, you know, being on the right side of history. You want to be on the right Mm. side of history and and you don't want to be shamed or or sometimes it's, it's for personal or economic or other benefits. Right. But but it, it's really learning how, how to perform good race behavior. And this is one of the reasons why I'm very conflicted about, you know, anti-racism training. Huh. Because I think a lot of people take this training and then they can say, well, I've done this. I, you know, I, I ticked the box. I've done this. I got training. And so now, now I know everything there is to know. And you can't say <laughs> that, I, that I don't. What it actually does is, is it gives them the language to perform anti-racism so that you don't get into trouble, quote unquote, in public without necessarily changing your behavior in private. Right. And again, this is part of that question, right? How can I do better? This idea that there's a manual that I can hand to you or a list of things that I can give you to check off. And once you've done those things, then there's no more learning left for you to do. And it doesn't work like that, Mm -hmm. right? We're talking about systems that have been embedded for thousands of years. And it's going to take time and work and hard work right, for us to to undo. Hmm. So what's the way to shift away from this performativity? Is it kind of like you were alluding to, just more sustained action? It's first of all, if I look at the world, right, if, if George Floyd's death happened, mm-hmm. maybe I had never, ever really believed that things were so broken. I had heard mm-hmm. people say it all along that, Black people died at a much higher rate than other people at the hands of the authorities. But I never believed it. And now I see it. Then you have to think about why was it that I was led to believe this? Hmm. Was it my family? Was it my friends? Was it the educational system? And then I have to begin to systematically refuse that belief that I had carried. So it's a process of both learning and unlearning. Mm-hmm. And it, it also means that the accountability 
can begin in small ways. It can mean that when my friends say things that I now know are untrue, then I can't let that pass, that I have to say no, right? That is not true. I no longer believe that. Or when I'm at home for Thanksgiving dinner, yeah. are you, are you going to intervene in that conversation or are you going to just sit there in silence? Like you can't sit there in silence and then come and ask me, what can you, how can you be better? Right. You know, we all, we often want to think of these big moments of change when it's, it's sometimes the every day, small things that, that we're not doing. Right. Rather than thinking about it as something to be learned, right? Like a training I can take. What if we, you thought about it as practice? anti-racism as a discipline, mm-hmm. right? So that constantly throughout the day, you might, for a while, you might have to be reevaluating yourself. Like, why do I feel uncomfortable in this moment? Why did I almost cross the street? Mm-hmm. So if you make it a kind of discipline and practice that really begins with you and not with me. You know, Elena, that reminds me of an adage. It says, every problem has a simple solution, which is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And this falls right into that category. The stuff which was uh, discussed is so nuanced Mm. that unless somebody thinks deep, there is no way the person can come uh, to those conclusions. Uh, And yes, why should be the onus on a black person to explain how can a white person or the other people? So it's not only white people. Uh, let's be very clear on that. Right. How can other people do better? Mm-hmm. Going off of that, I really loved hearing Andrea say that there's really no manual here and that no one person can tell you where you can improve to be anti-racist. It's a learning that you have to do yourself. And that kind of changed my idea of, I guess part of me has always thought that there's like one way that you have to find, but there isn't really, there's no script. Mm-hmm. So I will give our uh, listeners a manual. Oh, How about okay, that? okay, cool. So, so, <laughs> so if you ever feel the need to ask this question, pause for a second, Pretend you need to go to a washroom, (laughs) go to the washroom, Google, and then (laughs) learn and come back. Okay. Haven't been at work in a hot sec, but the (laughs) Wi-Fi in our bathrooms is bad. Use data. Yeah. Do whatever you need to do to learn on the toilet is what we're saying with this podcast. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) This is Harvinder Vadva. And I'm Elena Hudgens-Lyle. Thanks for getting inappropriate with us. Big thanks to our guests, Frederick Joseph and Andrea Davis. You also heard a voice note from Amari Gator. Every episode has an accompanying webcomic, and this week it was illustrated by C.A.P. Ward. You can find it on Instagram at IQ underscore podcast. Also make sure to visit cbc.ca forward slash IQ podcast for a full transcript of this episode. The trusty trio behind this podcast are Sabrina Birch, Cindy Long, and myself. The show is mixed by Andrew Norton. Our chase producer is Sarah Melton, and our digital producer is Judy Ziegu. Our senior producer is Jeff Turner, and our executive producer is Arif Nirani. 
an inappropriate question is like expecting a positive response from your dentist on the health of your teeth when your last floss was done by that dentist during your last visit. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.